Hello and welcome to Fintech Insider Insights. I'm Sarah Kachansky and today we want to talk about long-term business transformation and the need for agile infrastructure in financial services organizations in response to the COVID-19 crisis. To do so, I'm joined by some excellent guests. Making his Fintech Insider debut, we have my colleague, Nick Funnell, Head of Consulting Engineering at 11FS. Thank you for joining us, Nick. How are you today? Um, I'm good. I'm, I'm hot and nervous in that order. <laughs> Did they not tell you to bring a beer? They didn't, actually. I, I've not got time to fetch one now, have I? Okay, mm. let's just go with it. It'll be fine. Yeah, I'll, sad. I, I, I'll just speak to Laura. Maybe we should get that in the show notes next time. And all making welcome return visits to Fintech Insider, we have first up Lance Homer, Global Head of Digital Payments and Banking Ecosystem at Equinix. How are you doing today, Lance? Doing great. Thank you for having me on the show, Sarah. Is it, is it warm where you are? It is. It's uh, morning time here in the U.S., so it's just uh, starting to, to, to crack on getting warm. And uh, But I hear it's quite, quite sweltering in the U.K. right now. It is. It's lovely. And because we're British, we have to start every podcast talking about the weather. It's become a rule. Um, next up, we have Andrew Smith, CTO and founding member of RTGS Limited. Nice to have you back, Andrew. How are you doing? Not bad. Nice to be back. Thanks, Sarah. Enjoying uh, the weather. Enjoying the weather because with homeschooling, <laughs> With homeschooling, hot weather is good. The kids can get out of the office, which is their playroom, to be fair, yeah. Well, you can let them learn things in the garden. You know, it's botany or biology or something today. Worm exploring today. <laughs> <laughs> That's biology. It's definitely biology. Yeah, yeah. Um, and last, by no means least, we have Scott Abrahams, SVB, Business Development and Fintech at MasterCard. How are you today, Scott? I'm very good. Thank you very much. Uh, it's great to be here. Well, great to have you all with me. Let's get started. So let's start off with some scene setting and a quick recap. First up, how do we define infrastructure? Um, or what does it mean to you, Equinix, Lance? Sure. When, we, when I talk about infrastructure, I'm typically speaking about three components at the hardware level that comprise compute, network, and storage. I recognize that the line for what infrastructure means has started to blur as things become virtualized and we become more of a DevOps world. And so as we talk today, I'll primarily be talking about the hardware of compute network and storage and, and how it's transitioning. But I certainly expect kind of the others to have a more blended view of where it starts to fall into kind of a, a platform and application layer. Sure. Who, want, who, who wants to give their own definition? You know, it's absolutely fine to have, you know, different different interpretations of this, as everybody always does with these things. Yeah, so it, it, it's kind of weird. I, I, I completely agree with Lance, but it's, it's when I'm trying to think of stuff uh, infrastructure-wise, whether it's, you know, for, for RTGS or when we started ClearBank, it has to start really from even things like power supply. If you think about resiliency and, and all the things that go into just the basics, like your power supply, your telecommunication lines, that's really where the basic platform for infrastructure starts for me. And I kind of layer that all the way back up until you end up with uh, you know, things like Office 365 that comes under my basic infrastructure. That's how I look at that. It's, it's the stuff that allows me to deliver the services that us as a business need, um, which is a very, very broad meaning, right? It's, it's probably far too broad. But that's kind of where I, I kind of think that's an infrastructure problem. So I need to think of it in that way or this is an actual um, software product problem. You know, it, it's kind of trying to differentiate at that macro level rather than maybe the nuts and bolts. Sure. Uh, Nick, do you have a view on this? 
Sure, I, I suppose to declare my bias, my, my previous role to this was um, working within infrastructure at Barclays, actually. So we were doing cloud, but we were alongside, you had infrastructure, it was data centers, it was networks, it was PCs, laptops, and, and cloud and platform and application hosting. So it's really, for me, it's, it's, yeah, it's everything you need as someone building product and software to, to run that, that, to sort of underpin it, if you like. So it's, it's the sort of thing that ideally you, you would hope you wouldn't need to worry too much about, if you like. It's not the, the kind of source, but it is, of course, critical. And, and finally, Scott, let, um, you know, what, what's your take on this? What's your interpretation? I, I suppose I, I'm no techie, uh, I, I, unlike I think some of the other guys on the call today. I suppose from my perspective, there's I'm in the business doing deals. And for me, the infrastructure, as I think about it, is what allows me and all the people that work for me to enable to operate as well today as we were two or three months ago, right? Um, and then secondly, and from a more general MasterCard perspective, you know, we think of infrastructure, particularly when it when it comes to the, the assets that we bought as part of the Vocalink acquisition. That's critical infrastructure for the country, right? We're moving money left, right, and center around around the country and around the world. So infrastructure for me is more around how we've got things in place that allow me to continue to do business in the way I was a few months ago. And that's a really good point at which to bring up, you know, what's been the impact of the pandemic on the business infrastructure so far? So, you know, you're saying there, um, uh, Scott, that, you know, you're, you're looking for things that enable you to, to continue uh, operating as you were before. What what changes have we seen within infrastructure that have had to happen to enable that to happen uh, or to allow people to continue operating? Or maybe what hasn't happened and should have done? <laughs> um that's an interesting question. I mean, I think from my perspective, we as MasterCard, it feels to me we've moved relatively seamlessly to this new normal quite quickly, Sarah. I think actually that some of the applications and, and things that we're beginning to use now, such as Zoom and, and Teams, we weren't using so well before. And we've had to quickly think about those. And, and some of the things that we're using perhaps haven't been, haven't been working as well as we could. Um, but actually, from a, it's amazing how, I suppose, how quickly we and many people who work for me and many of our customers have begun to operate like this is just the new normal business as usual. And for, for me, and when I look at, you know, I've got a large team of people that work for me and hundreds of customers, we got there in a month or so, right? Uh, and it's amazing how, you know, we probably move forward from a infrastructure remote working perspective in a month what took 10 years in the past and it's been incredible that you know that's been the sort of pace of, of change that we've gone through did anybody else want to lance did you want to, to jump in there yeah certainly uh there's been a a change as companies have had their employees work from home corporate access has really been set up for most companies to only service a small portion of their employees at a single point in time. And now you have your whole employee base operating remotely. And that's changed how much bandwidth they're going to need for VPN access. You also had some businesses where they had employees working from desktops, didn't really ever work remotely. They were always expected to come into the office. But now they're quarantined at home. And they don't have a laptop and they're having to bring their own device to get on the network and it creates security issues. So there's been a, you know, a, a major shift to make sure the infrastructure that was just in place for a small portion of the, the workforce to work at home now to support everybody. And that, that's, that's a major change for the IT departments. 
Andrew, did you want to add to that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think it goes back to what your definition of infrastructure is, right? So a lot of people, when we talk about technology, especially within financial services, we think about online banking or we think about mobile banking or we think about your core. And a lot of people overlook that business continuity planning piece or, or, or not so much look overlook it. But we think of BCP as in, okay, I need a disaster recovery site. So that operationally could be a centre. You know, you've got one in Paul and you've got one in London, you've got one in, in, in Manchester or something, for example. But really, how many, how many financial services really thought about all of their staff, as, as Lance and, and Scott said, working from home? You know, there's not many people, I think, who looked at their infrastructure across their whole organisation and said, what happens if we had zero operational centres? Um, and it, it, that, that's, I think, later on in the podcast, we're going to talk about some of the culture and the fintech challenges and some of the areas they've got being natively born in the cloud. And the biggest benefit, I think, of this particular time is being that actually the, the systems that underpin your day-to-day working environment, they're already cloud native. So when I think of like ClearBank, for example, um, Scott just said it took them about a month to get to the new normal. We run a test on the Friday, everyone worked from home, fine, not a problem. That included engineers, even though engineers potentially sit there with their desktops, we then, uh, you know, we had a, a robust void policy, put that into action, and therefore the whole of the bank, you know, across multiple sites, across Bristol, London, et cetera, and then all working from home. Um, and we just carried that on, and that's that's still going on today. So I think that's the benefit, really, of when you start looking at infrastructure in terms of everything that you do. If it was all in the cloud straight away, when you have these incidents where you need more people to work from home, you can elastically scale, you can have people communicating via Teams and Zoom. And the new normal is just you know something that's actually going to be here to stay, I think, post-COVID. All right. Let's um. So, so we can we can all agree that the pandemic has forced financial services organisations to do this a hell of a lot quicker than they perhaps would have wanted to do, um, or than perhaps they they would have done previously. It's just been a necessity. Um, but we want to sort of dig into how you know that that rapid uh, cycle of innovation um can and, and should continue um in a in a hopefully post pandemic world or at least you know whatever we're going to define as the new normal. Much as I hate that phrase. Um. All right. So let let let's try and dig into that next. So um, we've sort of touched on this a little bit, but I don't know if anybody else wanted to add anything about the fact that organizations, as you've just said, Andrew, need to be prepared to work from home um, and they're going to need to continue to work remotely for sustained periods. I don't think anybody thinks we're all going to be back in the office by August, certainly not in the UK. Um, so what we've sort of touched a little bit on what it did look like. We've talked about desktops. We've talked about bandwidth. Um, you know, wh- wh- are there any other things that you think uh, we haven't touched on and that, that need to be a, a address now or, or in the future? Uh, Lance, do you want to kick us off? Sure. So one of the major changes that's occurred with COVID-19 is is it's not just the people at headquarters that are not going to work. It's also people in branches. The branches have been closed. And in fact, another impact area is, is call centers. Uh, these have been offshored and the infrastructure for networks and some of the places where they're offshored those employees really don't have the capabilities to work from home. And so you, you've seen kind of this, this impact on customer service where it's been forced to go digital very quickly. They may have had the, the, the applications in place to begin with, but not to, not to support the volumes that occurred when all the branches were closed. So that's a major impact that's happening because of COVID-19, aside from just the employees working from home. Anybody else? Have we missed anything? You know, we talked about VPNs briefly there. Uh, software as a service applications, maybe we need to see, you know, a greater move towards them. I know that the idea of, of cloud helps that. Um, Nick, I'll go to you first and then Andrew, I'll, I'll follow. 
Sure. Um, I, th- I think as a, as a general point, I think we talk about, you know, we talk about agile infrastructure. For, for me, obviously, as a software developer by trade, agility is, is a really big thing. It's about iterative, agile delivery, delivering something more fast, iterating on it. I think what's interesting about the pandemic is it's forced this agile, iterative approach. So like, if you'd said, OK, in a year's time, there will be a pandemic, prepare for it. It would have been everybody would set up big, long waterfall projects, lots of infrastructure, et cetera, et cetera. What's happened here is right next week, pandemic, sort it. And people have just <laughs> had to do something, anything, just get something working, scramble. You people log off there, log on back in here, we'll, we'll put some things on there. And yes, some companies, as we'll talk about, have been better set up for that than others. But I think what's interesting is it's, it's forced that iterative delivery, get something out there working and then make it better. And, you know, it's actually, in many ways, it's moved us forward a lot. Yeah. And we're in a much, better place in some ways yeah we would never have places would never have moved this fast without this kind of spur if you like i'm not saying that hey COVID 19 a good thing but i'm saying that um it's interesting when with the right lever things can be very fast indeed Yes, I think I think it's an interesting point, although I think there are some people who perhaps didn't pick that up. The example I keep using, but I'm going to keep using it because I can't forgive them, is Nationwide, who decided the response to all of this was just to close their call centres on weekends. That was, you know, that was doing something fast, which is closing the call centre. Um, we will get onto the fact that other people perhaps did things slightly differently. Um, Andrew, did you want to make a point on that? Yes, yeah, so Nick stole a bit of my thunder there, really. So I think the thing that the, one of the biggest learners is the, is the cultural things, uh, the, the, the cultural impact. So not just our, you know, our mindset of let's work from home, but actually culturally, it's on oh my word, we need to get this done. Now, as, as Nick just said, we don't have to have the time for this glorified waterfall. So, so many other things though, around the technical issues, I think we're starting to look at actually, now we've got a lot more bandwidth coming into you know, potentially our servers, our, our, our particular infrastructure, let's call it. Um, v- VPN is, is something like a technology that we all kind of stand on. They say, oh, you, you VPN into this particular platform. But when you have larger volumes of people, the bandwidth that's available to you in VPN actually becomes too narrow. So I think we're starting to see a bit more of a cultural mindset and definitely a security mindset and say, well, actually, you know, what's wrong with multi-form factor authentication? Let's start looking at, at you know, public key infrastructure. Let's start looking at more of a, a soft, self-sovereign identity sort of things to actually pass that information, those credentials across so you get far greater security around your communications online without the restrictions of a VPN. And I think actually that's probably the next thing that's going to come out the back of this. Um, so, so Nick, you know, Nick was right there. The biggest thing is obviously the cultural piece. But I think there's a couple of knock-on effects in terms of what we think of as security going forward. So, um, so we talked about kind of like the business's needs, you know, in and of itself to keep operating, to just keep functioning, whether that's business or usual or not is another question. Um, but what about how, how customer needs have changed? So if we're talking about the customers of financial services organizations. So that could be, as we've said, you know, consumers, you know, branches having closed, um, you know, what is, how, do, how do you provide more services, more digital services? How do you get people who were previously not using digital services to adopt them? Um, then you've got, you know, it's kind of like a double whammy here. Not only have your branches closed, but you've got a greater sort of uh, a swathe of products and problems that customers are coming to you with. So, you know, small business loans, you've got overdrafts being waived, you've got mortgage holidays. So you're not only trying to support you know, existing products and services, you're trying to implement new ones and support customers as they're being implemented. 
Um, and then I guess the third thing is we can't really forget that businesses are banks' customers as well. So if you're looking at what's happened here in the UK, it's actually been amazing. We've seen lots of small businesses just be able to switch to doing things online, whether that's coffee, whether that's uh, you know de- whether that's takeaway, whether that's delivery, whether that's going cashless. But of course, if you're going to go cashless and you're going to do online ordering, then you kind of you, you're going to need help from a bank there as well to suddenly be able to take contactless payments, for example, or indeed card payments in the first place. If you were previously a food stall. This is just an example that took cash at a market every Wednesday. Um, so, you know, what, about, what are people's views on on, on the customer lens here? Uh, Scott, I'll start with you. Well, I, th- I think there's a there's been some great input from some of the guys. I think it's a great thing in terms of there's going to be a it's a really interesting way of thinking about it, and and we've discussed that internally here at Mastercard in terms of you know if we had to plan for this a year out, you know, would we have done so much so quickly and. I don't think we would. And and the best example for me of that is is increasing the contactless limit from 30 to 45 pounds in the UK. And we actually did that in 30 odd countries across Europe. And that took days. That's a years of discussion in the past, right, on that, uh, on that alone. But the point I was going to make around your question is, I think this is, for me, this is a time when the real advantage of being digital first has appeared almost overnight. So rather than a gradual, you know, chipping away of the competition, if you like, and I'll give you one example of that. We have millions of consumers looking to get their money back at the moment for different things, right? Um, and, you know, there are a number of our customers who are, are, are digital first and, and able to, you know, manage those queries digitally first very quickly. And then we've got a lot of our other customers who aren't. And that is a true competitive advantage that was always there, but has been brought into real stark light, I would say, in the last few few weeks and, and months. Um, and so, you know, and I think that's only going to quicken as we realize that this isn't a short term, you know, we all work at home and, and that's it for a few weeks and then everything's fine again. The other thing I would say, just in terms of our customer demands, is just how different businesses' attitude is towards working at home towards the pandemic and how they've, um, you know, we had a number of our customers still looking to meet us. Um, A number of our customers never want to meet us again. And so there's just a huge diversion of different views, which we've, you know, we've had to try and cover as best we can in the last few weeks. So, um, you know, that, that's really interesting, obviously, because MasterCard is, is, has a lot of direct interaction with, with consumers. Does anybody else um, want to just chip, uh, you know, put, put something out there on the customer perspective? Because um, I, don't know if any, I don't know if anybody else has that kind of insight. Yes, Lance, please. I mean, I'll, I'll speak from the perspective. I think I'm the only U.S. Uh, participant on the, on the call here today. But uh, when the U.S. government was trying to get out small business loans, and to, to help get the payroll protection program, there was some massive infrastructure challenges in, in place and at the, at the government level to support all these banks trying to process loans immediately for their end customers. And I think there's a couple of things that came out of this that were really kind of the human impact where infrastructure may not be ready, where humans need to step up. And you got to see kind of bankers especially the community bankers work the extra hours to figure out how they're going to, they didn't have the bodies to throw at, create a new APIs immediately. This, this process was brand new, but they were able to service their customers in ways that were just heroic to keep these 
these people be able to make their payroll. But then the other part of the heroic kind of piece with the human level is just there were a number of well-funded people who decided they wanted to help support this program, like Mark Cuban, and there were others out there who reached out to fintechs of how can I get money out into into the space and support them? And so the, the, the people who were agile and had the ability to do that could use the, the fintechs that had the capability to do that. There's some great stories around that. So um, I think, you know, there's, there's kind of, as we said, there's quite a lot out there from the customer perspective, but I think what's sort of become clear is that, you know, whilst digital transformation and agility in particular has been on the cards for a long time, we've all agreed here that it's it's not new, but it certainly has been ramped up exponentially and the virus has increased the need for it. Um, and we've just sort of praised a few examples there of people who have moved quickly and who've done things well. But generally speaking, this this isn't easy, right? So it isn't an easy thing for a large financial services organization to do. Um, you know, a couple of things here that kind of w- w- may be irrelevant, but, you know, legacy uh, legacy banks and older financial service providers have baggage, <laughs> to put it that way, whether that's, emo- we won't go into whether that's emotional baggage right now, um, but, you know, pr- practical, physical baggage in the sense of mainframes and COBOL and, and, and you know, uh, legacy apps. Um there's also the problem about, you know, uh, hiring and, and getting the right talent in place. You know, if you're a large organization, perhaps you have a reputation that turns people off or perhaps because of the speed at which you move, you don't attract the best people who really want to really want to get in there and do big things and do them fast. Um, and then, of course, you've got the idea of kind of um, a lot of uh, long-term uh, contracts. So you've got a long-term contract with a software supplier or with a technology supplier, Um and then it's going to cost you an awful lot to kind of reduce agility. So those are just some things that that uh, you know we've thought about. But but other, I'm sure there are other things that perhaps I've missed, or perhaps there's one there that you think is more has more of an impact than any other on on why big banks are pretty slow at this. Generally speaking, Lance, do you want to go first? Yeah, I'll, I'll take first here. Um, I'll start out with if you if people have not seen David Breer's video, it's called the Banking Battlefield. It is a, a great uh, expression of, of what's going on, and it's worth watching, for, especially for what you're just, we're, we're talking about right here. So certainly the banks have had legacy infrastructure with the mainframes. And and Andrew, I'm sure you don't probably have any mainframes uh, at ClearBank or RTGS. No, he's shaking your head no. And that's just not agile infrastructure. It's typically been siloed in a data center. It wasn't built for microservices and a- APIs. It's it more built for systems of records versus systems of intelligence or systems of, of context. And so, you know, in my experience at Equinix, I've, I've worked in 11 years in, in building financial services ecosystems here. First part of that career was was with capital markets. And I've seen a lot of the banks on the payment side and processors start to hire some of the technologists out of the companies that were successful in the scaling of systems for algorithmic trading. And as they've brought them into their companies, there's been, like you said, Sarah, some challenges with retaining them because they get in there and if they come into a bank to kind of transform them they find that the, the processes are just so bogged down and difficult to to move because there's so many different platforms and so honestly this is something that's been been worked on for quite some time and and what i'd say here is is the road's bumpy and and the, the challenge here and i think nick was talking about earlier you know 
if you were to ask people to prepare for a pandemic a year ago, they would have set up all these waterfall charts and, and made this timeline of how to get here. But all of a sudden now they're, they've, it's a bumpy road and they're now trying to hit the gas and it doesn't make it any less bumpy to try to make this, this digital transformation. So I think you made some good points. What we're seeing here in terms of the buying of our of services from companies that, that use Equinix is they need agility in terms of they don't want to get into long-term contracts. And that's the advantage of going into like a SaaS application that's month to month. They don't want to get into building out an MPLS network where they've got to get a three to five year contract that for a partner that they may not have. They want to use, you know, software defined network connectivity that they can turn up and turn down in real time and be able to turn that, turn things up and turn them down in the cloud, just like uh, the, the fintechs have been able to do so prior to the pandemics. Cool. Um, Scott, did you want to go next and then we'll come on to Andrew? Yeah, well, I was going to mention there, and and I think you know all those things are, are valid when it comes to the bigger banks, the infrastructure, and all those things. But I, you know, I, I manage a lot of our relationships with both very big banks and also fintechs, and I I always try and make sure that there's some balance to be struck. And I think, to be fair, particularly in times like this, you know, the pressure from government, from regulators, from everybody comes to bear on those in the UK in the big four or five banks. So you know that they. they as always, they feel very crushed between what the government is asking them to do and what the regulators are telling them to be careful about doing versus their ability to react at, at pace. And of course, they're very much in the public eye when it comes to these things as well. And, and so I think from that perspective, that's the other thing that sometimes actually ironically inhibits them. You, you know, th- there's so much pressure on them to do the right thing. And they've got the Chancellor of the Exchequer at, at five o'clock every night you know, to some extent, potentially blaming them that there isn't enough money getting out into the, you know, just like we saw in the US to some extent as well. So, you know, there's always, and that pressure has been ramped up, you know, a million times compared to what it's normally like as well. And Andrew, did you want to add to that? Yeah, so actually, just before, so Scott's made a really great point that actually I will want to touch on, but just going back just before that, what Lance was saying was, you know, the way I look at some of the problems that, that, that let's, let's call them more successful banks have had then, yeah, because actually the legacy systems are a pain to, to move or become agile because of their success. We've got to remember why, why, is, why does, you know, Bank A have three and a half thousand products because it's been successful. It, that, that's, that's, the, that's the actual the end, of the, uh, <laughs> end of the story. Do you know what I mean? It, that success is therefore when you've got thousands of products, you've got a platform that's worked for 20, 30, 40 years. It's, it's dealing with their capacities right now. So it's not necessarily a scale issue or anything like that. It's actually to do with um, the cultural mindset around how do you want to move? How do you want to move that? And when you've got something that's massive and it's been massively successful for you, it makes it really hard to actually move that. Just to follow on from what Scott's point was, was talking about there, I think actually regulatory headwinds um, are a good thing, but they're also a bad thing. And it's kind of, everyone talks about healthy tension, especially in banking, you know, you've got healthy tension of regulation and then trying to be profitable and things like that. But when we start looking at, um, you, know, you put, put a magnifying glass over a situation like we've got right now, that pressure, as Scott said, gets really ramped up. And the problem that you have there is that um, decision makers are disincentivized to make risk decisions. They completely are, right? Because you're personally accountable now under the SMR regime here in the UK for something that you may do that's, that's wrong. So if you look at the, you know, the failure of C-bills and things like that is, you know, 
there's only a tiny amount of money is actually being pushed out into the economy. And that's probably to do a lot of it to do with the fact that people are sitting there saying, well, I've got to maintain this amount of capital. I've got to maintain this uh, liquidity. Um, I know the government's backing 80% of the loan, but you know, if 100% of all these go bad, even though I'm only taking 20% of those, I can't take them on. Then you've got other things like, well, actually, these actually aren't necessarily our customers. So how am I KYC in them? I need to be compliant in terms of sanction screening, blah, blah, blah. So you end up in a world where it's just too easy and we feel personally accountable to say, I can't take that on. I can't do it, which means you've got to start looking at um, alternative lenders and, and alternative methods for distributing those funds. And a lot of that is all to do with, as I said, regulatory mindsets, the SMR regime and, and the pressures that you're having in terms of please go out and lend money. But on the other hand, the pressure that you've got and the personal accountability is make sure you've lent it to the right person and that you're 100% going to get it back. They, they just don't balance I think I think that's a really important point. You know, we talk about that quite a lot. It, it, it's easier to make a mistake if nobody's looking at you. If you're a small fintech and you make a mistake, then then nobody's going to come down hard on you. If you're TSB, my goodness, you'd know that the entire world, its media, and you know every customer you've ever had is going to come down on you. So it becomes, you know, the, I guess the risk reward becomes higher on both sides, possibly. But um, Nick, did you just want to add something in there? Yeah, I think it's it's an observation, really. I mean, we're talking about the, as you say, the the successful, the the very very big um, organisations, enterprises, things like that. They they can't move fast. We know they can't move fast. But what, what's interesting for me is we've been talking about like we've at Eleven Fest, we've changed our ways of working. You know, we're adapting. Um, in particular, I think it's important to be more asynchronous, so it's not point to point. So I find the bigger organisations like the banks, they're unable to change the way they're doing it. So things around them need to change to support it. So for instance, call centers, they can't suddenly do away with call centers. So they need virtual call centers so they can have their people talking like in a virtual sense, but not in an actual building, but there's still a call center. You know, it's not digital. It's not sort of point to point. Um, similarly, um, like with their, you know, their bandwidth requirements. So, you know, using Citrix to the bank, or, you know, logging to a virtual desktop, you literally sit at home. And when you move your mouse, you're moving a mouse on your virtual desktop. That takes a huge amount of bandwidth. And an old colleague of mine at a bank, I, I won't mention, like he, he couldn't work for a day because there was a problem with his profile and he couldn't connect. So if you contrast that the way with the sort of, well, to take 11 events as an example, we use a lot of cloud cloud services we can i can if i'm unplugged from the internet i can still use my laptop and what's on it and what's more it's a lot more like just email like pull and push so you're just connecting when you need to bring things locally so i guess my overall point is that, that the banks are just they're unable to move fast because everything around them you know to, to we talk about agile infrastructure it's upping that bandwidth to to cope it's, it's bringing the virtual data centers all this infrastructure has to move around them whereas actually the smaller the fintechs they just they consume different infrastructure maybe lesser infrastructure interesting we're just going to take a quick pause here to hear about this week's sponsor who also happens to be with us today this podcast is brought to you by equinix Equinix is the world's largest global platform of interconnected data centers, enabling fastest application performance, lowest latency, and a digital ecosystem for financial services. Its platform of over 200 data centers worldwide protects, connects, and empowers the mission-critical infrastructure for over 10,000 businesses. Find out more at equinix.co.uk. So we've covered why it's it's hard, but how do you actually do it? <laughs> so what are the key things you need to bear in mind when you're trying to be? It's, it's easy, right? Nick, okay, so since you're so keen to tell us, please give us a quick rundown of what you need to bear in mind. I wish I hadn't done that. Um, <laughs> 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 okay, um, so do you mean in terms of how to be more agile? 
I think it's, you know, what are the different things you need to bear in mind? So, you know, you've got to be scalable. You've got to sort of analyze upstream and, you know, providers downstream your customers. Um, you know, can you can you change your offering quickly? You know, what about M&A and, and development? You know, it's kind of like, how do you, what do you have to bear in mind when you're doing it? And then I suppose that's the most important thing, actually. It's kind of like, what, what might you forget? Um, you know, the actual practical doing of it. I suspect it's probably easier than getting your head around why you do it and which bits you need to to incorporate. But perhaps I'm wrong on that. Did you want to jump in there, Lance? Sure. So we have about 10,000 customers at Equinix, and most of them are on this journey to become agile. And I can kind of talk about some of the best practices that we see in that journey. Often it begins with creating the digital edge inside of a co-location facility like Equinix so that they can connect to their cloud service providers, connect to their SaaS providers. So when this pandemic started, a number of our customers were using web conferencing applications who sat inside of Equinix and they needed more bandwidth to them. And they could quickly and easily turn that up in a day so there were, weren't system problems. So the mainframe may sit still in, in the customer's on-prem data center, but by moving some of the infrastructure that's for interconnection-oriented architecture, they can start then peering with their partners that are upstream from them that provide their some critical infrastructure, whether it's banking as a service from somebody like a clear bank or connecting to a card scheme like a MasterCard here. You know, some of the challenges that I think we're going to see here is the speed of of network connectivity is going to become important. Not, not, not just this bandwidth speed, I'm talking about the time to turn up. So one of the challenges that we see with, with these fintechs is they might subscribe to a banking as a service provider, but the long pole in the tent might be connecting to the card scheme for the card scheme routers to be delivered by an MPLS circuit, things like that. And so, you know, I see a transition to, you know, being agile for a card scheme is figuring out how to do multi-tenant access inside of a, a co-location facility and being able to deliver service to, to their customers who are in the cloud. Uh, and then I think you talked about kind of being agile for mergers and acquisitions. So uh, just was on a call yesterday with a, a large U.S. bank that, is trying to roll out a, a product. And, and as we talk to them and giving them some advice as a trusted advisor, we you know encourage them to make sure that that infrastructure that they're building out was actually distinct and separate inside of separate cages so that if someday occurred that they wanted to spin this up into a whole new business unit, that they could without having any issues of separating the infrastructure. So there's a lot that can be done to kind of create scalability if you begin with the right f- mindset at, at front of, hey, I want to be agile. How do I accomplish this? And, and it begins with, you know, where are you going to put your infrastructure to begin with? Great. And um, Andrew, do you want to, to want to build on that? And then I will go back to Nicky. He's not getting away with it, like I said. I work with him. Yeah. I can do yeah. that to him. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, yeah, just building on what Lance said there, I think for, for me, um, agile infrastructure is a weird thing. It's a weird comment. Actually, I, I haven't heard that too often. For, for Agile is actually, as, as Lance just said, is a mindset, right? And if you think of agile as a mindset properly, it's not it's not about practices or processes. It's actually about principles. So if you want to be agile, you want to be an infra, you know an agile institution or an agile organization, whether you're a, you know a successful fintech, you're a startup, or, or you're you know a bank that's been successful for the last two hundred years, um, you've got to move to a mindset where you're principle driven. And, and your principles, if you're thinking then about you know, agile infrastructure or, or highly scalable, highly available infrastructure is to make sure you stick to those principles uh, with laser focus. And I think Agile, a lot of people, 
the mindset outside of agile practitioners is very much as, you know, I can just do what I want and we just somehow muddle to get the way through. That's actually not really what it's about. It's about laser-like focus. So if you've got laser-like focus around these particular principles, and if you're an organization, you, you strategically know where you're going. If you then stick with your principles, um, you actually can become quite an agile uh, agile business. Now, if you're talking about how do I move somebody, you know, an incumbent bank with you know, 30, 40 years worth of legacy into an agile infrastructure, that's not going to happen overnight. And I think a couple of times, maybe even on, on this podcast, I spoke about, I think the way you have to do that is start again and almost cannibalize your own business. Um, and we see that with, with with companies like Apple. We see it with people like Microsoft. You know, Microsoft was a, was a highly successful business around desktop services, but it's actually cannibalized itself moving to software as a service and cloud platforms. So it, it's a tough one, but it's actually about focus and principles rather than processes or the bigger picture even. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. I think that's that's important for so much when we talk about digital transformation. You know, as as a whole, the big meaty subject that it is. Um, Nick, did you did you come up with an answer? Thankfully, I think so. Um, <laughs> no, I, I, I totally agree. Actually, with, with what's been said, and I think you know, I'm a big, um, yeah, I, I'm very keen on on agility. I think it's very, very important. But particularly, I you know, I think about it from a software point of view, as I'm sure does Andrew. So it is it is absolutely all, all about principles. I think for me, almost trying to apply the software principles to what we're talking about, it's about one of the things that helps with the thing that we're building or the underpinning sort of services is making things as modular and loosely coupled as possible. So where you've got a chain of things that need to happen or providers or when we talk about mergers and things like that, if these things are loosely coupled, it means you can move them around and you can make them bigger and make them smaller depending on what you need. So then when we talk about data centers you know you're not potentially tightly coupled into it you can move it to another data center i mean i'm obviously a big big fan of cloud that's my background ultimately if it's in the cloud it's still in a data center somewhere it's just not your data center so there is that aspect of of decoupling and being able to move around and i think that then gives you options and it allows you to to adapt yeah, I think that, I think that flexibility is so important. Um, so to conclude today's show, as I warned, um, taking into account all that we've discussed, we want to know what the businesses of the future look and feel like. So, what do you expect to see, and how long will this take to achieve? I'm going to come to uh, I'm going to come to Scott first because you were last last time, which is probably slightly unfair, and then I will go around the group. But everybody has to say something, okay? Well, I, th- I think perhaps let me talk about perhaps not what the you know what I expect the customer, but more in terms of what they look like and what they're prepared to do. I think what I've learned personally in the last few weeks is that there is a, a much larger human capacity for change than I think any of us assume when we have to do something in a different way. Um, and perhaps that will be, you know, when, you know, we get back to a normal and in inverted commas position, maybe that's something that we need to remember. Um, you know, I think that, and we spoke about this at the start, I think the, the businesses that have and already had a flexible and agile culture are the ones that will continue to, and in fact, perhaps pull away from the pack even more so in the in the future. And those that have been perhaps too careful and underestimating the capacity of their employees or their customers' ability to change are the ones that are going to lose in, in the, you know, in the medium to long term. Now, I know we've spoken a lot more again here, you know, from a, a almost a, a technology perspective, but obviously culture comes with technology as well. And I think the real winners here will be the ones that don't underestimate how much their colleagues can cope with in a short period of time. Yeah, the, the human capacity to adapt 
change and absorb impact is is truly incredible. Um, all right, who wants to go next? Who's who's thought about this? Who's had a who has a prediction for me? Andrew, go on then. I'll, I'll take it. So um, actually, I think what we're going to look at in the future is that especially in the financial services sector, that a lot more businesses are going to realise that they can't and they shouldn't own the whole end-to-end journey. Um, I think at the moment we kind of think of it as I need to own from the customer right the way through to the connection to the payment system to, to clearance settlement. And realistically, that means you've got too many areas that are, that are under stress. You've either got to scale them, you've got to think about the performance, the availability, you've got the regulatory side of things. And therefore, when you want to change it, you just simply don't have the operational capacity behind it or, or the appetite to spend that amount of money because actually your cost reward, you, you know, your, your return on investment is just not quite there. So what we're going to end up seeing is that businesses become a lot more laser focused around the journey and less about who owns which particular slice of that journey or those particular steps. So we'll see a lot more um, businesses that I think are, that are aggregators. You know, Clearbank's a, a, a classic, highly focused aggregator of specific services so if you want to get a world-class banking system that's actually connected to you know the bank of england and all the payment systems etc etc and delivers nice restful real-time apis you can go to that and use that straight away and you don't have to worry about all the operational overheads the regulatory wins with it it just becomes you know banking as a function banking as a feature and if you start to then own your different features and you you see your your value chain is the top to bottom but not necessarily owning all the pieces the future is you know, a lot more modular, a lot more autonomous, a lot more focused, a lot more scalable because of all of that. And, and most of that will therefore mean we're becoming plumbers and all the plumbers live in the cloud. <laughs> I love that. We're all becoming plumbers and we all live in the cloud. Great. Um, Lance, Lance, did you want to give us your prediction? Yeah, um, Andrew stole a bit of the thunder for what I was going to predict here, but going on his comments about things becoming modular and not, companies not trying to own the entire stack, I think we'll continue to see the shift, not just towards cloud, but for companies to to get out of their data centers that they they own proprietary wise. There's no strategic advantage in, in owning and operating your own data center. It's it's an asset that depreciates. It's expensive. It's capital intensive. But as they shift to cloud, it's going to be. A, I know Nick's a, f- a fan of cloud, but I think companies are going to need a multi-cloud strategy. But then they, it, you know, going back to what infrastructure means to me, you know, networking becomes important. So you've got to have this this pivot point inside of a co-location facility that can kind of orchestrate the workloads between your cloud providers, your your partners, et cetera, and, and onboard customers quickly so that when something like a pandemic or the next big thing hits us, you can pivot quickly. It's not necessarily about the big eating the, the, the small nowadays. It's really about the fast eating the slow. And so those that can figure out how to be position their infrastructure to be in a situation where they can take advantage of being able to switch contracts, partners, cloud providers, et cetera, quickly without having to, to lift and shift an entire data center, those are the, that'll be the future of business. And, um, and Nick, I'm going to give you like the final word here. Do you, do you have a, a short, snappy, final kind of pithy thing to leave us on? My first podcast, the last word, goodness. Um, I think I think the gap's going to widen. I think a lot of the bigger, you know, take banks example. I think they're hanging on. They've they've, they've taken emergency steps. They've got that they flexed. Be interested to see if when hopefully things settle down, will they still flex or will they then be stuck at the point at which they flex to? You know, have they actually have they transformed? Have they become true digital or are they still kind of 
what they were before, and they're just waiting for the next disaster. I think when you compare that to the the smaller fintechs, I think it's you know with cloud infrastructure things like that, there's a lot less of a barrier to to getting up and running. So I think smaller, faster companies, more ideas, things could be tried. So I just think the gap's going to widen essentially. Brilliant. Well, that is a great point to leave it there for today, much as I am sure you would, um, you gentlemen could continue debating this for a while longer. Um, that wraps up today's discussion. Thank you all so much for joining me. Where can people find out more about you and your companies? Uh, Scott, should we start with you? Yeah, well, uh, mastercard.com, scott.abrahams at mastercard.com. Write to me about anything you want. <laughs> You're going to regret that. Um, Lance, how about you? You can find more about Equinix at equinix.com. I'm on Twitter under the handle at underscore paymentologist. And uh, to find out specifically about what Equinix is doing in the payments ecosystem, you can go to payments.eco for payments ecosystem. Brilliant. Andrew, how about you? Yeah, so you can go to, well, it depends which hat you want me to have on, but um, you can you can find out more about ClearBank at simply clear.bank. Or there's um, real-time global settlements, which is rtgs.global, which is the world's first uh, liquidity network for interbanks. And my own Twitter handle is fintechandrew. Nice and simple. Perfect. Uh, Nick, how about you? So a couple of months ago, I'd have said I'm two desks over from you, but obviously uh, <laughs> not anymore. Um, <laughs> obviously, there's a loanofest.com, and you can find me on LinkedIn as well, Nick Funnel. Brilliant. And you can find me on Twitter at Sarah Kachansky. Thanks for listening. If you like what you've heard, subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to leave us a review. It helps to make it better and helps others to find the show. Speaking of which, if you know someone who loves fintech who isn't listening to Fintech Insider, please pass the podcast along and do tell them about the show. If you have any suggestions or feedback, find us on social media. Just search for 11 colon FS or email podcasts at 11fs.com. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.